You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. If you do have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Ephesians 1? Because we're going to unpack some of what they just read. Hey, this Wednesday, I hope that you'll join with me. Myself, uh, Dave, our student pastor, will be interviewing Josh McDowell. Many of you know that name over the last half century of ministry. He is at the forefront of a field called apologetics. And no, it's not a husband saying he's sorry. That's not what apologetics it is. But husbands should say they're sorry frequently. It is a defense of the faith. And we're going to find out why that's so important to communicate both the facts for the head as well as emotions for the heart as we communicate the gospel. You'll find that on Facebook or you'll find that in an email that's delivered in your inbox every Wednesday. And so we invite you to be a part of that. While we're talking about things that are upcoming, would you just take this and hold it and hold it up? Just kind of wave it at me, would you? Wave it right there. So that, that's letting you know that on the 21st of February, you don't need to be anyplace else but the Winter Bible Conference, all right? It's going to be a great time together. Alfredo, let me tell you the story about Alfredo. Alfredo is worth $1.2 billion. He made his money in banking and finance in the country of Mexico. He loves baseball. In fact, he owns two baseball teams, Alfredo does. But Alfredo's noteworthiness is not so much that he's involved with banking and finance or even baseball. It's because he was kidnapped. And his kidnappers in 1994 were asking for, get this, $100 million in ransom. That's a lot of money. $100 million. Come to find out, 25 minutes before the time, the deadline that the kidnappers had given Alfredo's family. His family comes forward on local television and says, we've got a negotiated money to release Alfredo. In fact, did you know that you can have kidnapping ransom insurance? And that's what Alfredo had. He was a man of great means. And so his banking industry, K&R Insurance, paid the tune of $30 million in 1994 to release Alfredo as a ransom. Now, in a strange twist of fate, Alfredo, actually a decade later, would attend the funeral of a 14-year-old boy who also himself was kidnapped. He was the son of a wealthy store owner in Mexico and Central America area. And Alfredo, excuse me, Fernando, this young 14-year-old, Fernando had been kidnapped and was asked for money and indeed, his family paid. They'd asked the police not to get involved. Fernando had been driving to school one morning in an armored BMW with security guards. And that's when he was stopped by the group, what we'd call the Mexican FBI. They stopped him there. Come to find out, the police were in on the criminal activity. And even though the family paid the kidnapping, they found young 14-year-old Fernando's body in the trunk of a vehicle some months later. Wouldn't be surprising for you to know that his father was weeping at his memorial service and he said these words, no more Fernandos. He was referencing the prevalence of kidnapping for money in the area during that period of time. The dad in his tears said, no more Fernandos. Now I tell you that story of Fernando and Alfredo, not to make you sad, but to tell you at the heart of the message of Christianity, is a story of redemption or ransom. The word literally means ransom, as we're going to see in a moment. That Christ came to release those of us in bondage. And spiritually, 
Christ came to say, no more Fernandos, no more. Keep your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 1. Today when we look at redemption, I want to look at what is redemption? Why do I need redemption? How do I get redemption? What is it? Why do I need it? And how do I get it? Redemption, in verse 7, the Bible says, in him we have redemption through his blood. It's the heart right there in verse 7. In him we have redemption. The him is Jesus there. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now the word ransom really has two components to it. First, there is a captivity, a bondage, or a slavery, be a prisoner of war or someone like Alfredo who's kidnapped in that way, a criminal way. And then there is a payment of it. There is a payment for release. A payment is made to free and secure the person's safety, whether it's prisoner of war or someone else. In fact, like all things, ransom and kidnapping has even gone digital. Everything's got to be digital in our day, right? So there's this thing called ransomware. And maybe you're aware of ransomware. And ransomware was on the move in 2020. It was targeting hospitals. The Vermont Medical Center hospital system, 5,000 computers were attacked in October of this past year. 5,000 computers. Can you imagine the lack of shame to lock down hospitals' computers when they're caring for people and they need those computers to ensure that others are safe? So hospitals have had this and cities have had this. Entire cities have been locked down. And these criminals are asking for a ransom. They're asking for money. And then when the money comes in, generally in a currency that cannot be traced, then all your files are released. And at the heart of the message of Christ, like those computer files that are locked up, the Bible says, whether you know it or not, you and I are locked up. We're in bondage. And we are to be ransomed. We are to be redeemed. Those words are nearly synonyms. And Christ comes and he frees you from your sin, your ego, and your selfishness. Now let me back up and let me say it for like the third week in a row. This is one long sentence we've been studying here. Beginning in verse 3 to verse 14 is one long sentence. And it's really Paul who writes Ephesians. We're studying this book this year. He's cramming everything he can in this sentence. He just doesn't know when to stop. Did you hear about the boy? The teacher said, can you spell the word banana? The little boy began by B-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A. He didn't know when to stop. That's Paul. He doesn't know when to stop. He just crams it all in there. Now, verses 3 through 14 doesn't look like one sentence in your translation. In fact, in my version, has five sentences. No English translation that I'm aware of tries to make it one sentence. And yet it is one glorious sentence that really gives a panoramic view. See, the reason you should be interested, you should be as excited about that sentence as Paul is, is because it really is your story if you're in Christ. You should be as excited about this sentence as Paul is because it really is your story. Let me help you with this. In chapter 1, you see your story from God's perspective. But in chapter 2, as we're going to see, you're going to see your story from your perspective. In chapter 2, it will tell the story of how you've been rescued, redeemed, saved from the perspective of a human being, what happens on the street level. You can think of Google Streets or whatever that program is where I can look at all the streets. Now, in chapter 1, though, it sees it from God's perspective. Have you ever seen your house? Have you ever seen where you live and kind of the place where you go every day? And you've ever seen it from like a a drone 
Or maybe you've flown in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport and you thought to yourself, okay, I'm going to look for that I'm going to look for that landmark, that big lake by my house, or that water tower by my house, and I'm going to find my place. And you look at that, and it looks so different, doesn't it, when you see it from the air? It's so familiar when you drive the streets and you walk it and you navigate that day in, day out, but when you see it from the air, the panoramic view, and that's what, that's what chapter 1 is. God is showing you your story and beginning in verse 3, he begins with the grace of God and he ends with the glory of God in verse 14. It's your story and you should be thrilled by it, excited by it, because he's ransomed you, he's redeemed you. So we're going to see all three beings of the Trinity are involved in this in the days to come. So back in verse 7, the Bible says you've been redeemed. You have been rescued. In fact, verse 6, this is to the praise of his glorious grace. Back up a verse, verse 6 there to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, the reason we're to praise him is because his grace fuels the redemption. Redemption comes along and it stops at a Texaco station or it stops at a, at a, at a Walmart to get gas. And what does it gas up with? Not oil-based, not green, grace. It fuels with grace. And, and then the Bible's calling on us to praise God for this. Now, why is that? Well, when a wealthy person donates a wing to the hospital, we'll put her name or his name over that wing. When a corporation names a stadium, and we'll call the stadium by that name, do we not? And it changes like every year. Do you call it AT&T Stadium or is it, is it, you know, Minute Maid Park? It's just so confusing. Just settle on a name for my lifetime, please, right? And then a soldier, a soldier that's incredibly brave, We'll praise that soldier. We'll put medals around his neck and on his chest. Now, if we praise soldiers and if we praise wealthy donors and corporations, should we not praise the one who gives grace and fuels our redemption? So Paul's calling on us to lift up our voices because Christ has claimed that which is lost and he's freed that which is enslaved. What is redemption? Redemption is a ransom. You and I have been morally kidnapped we're in the hands of another captor, and we need to be released. We need to be ransomed. We need to be redeemed. We need to be freed up from all that is free. Here's the second question. Not only what is it, but why do I need it? Well, I've given you a little bit already, but in verse 7 again, we have redemption. And the Bible says just quite simply that you're so bad, you, not your mother, not your father, not your teenage kids, not the other political party you don't like, you. Am I clear? You're so bad, you need to be ransomed. You need to be redeemed. And the Bible begins here sort of entertaining language that you and I would entertain when somebody's done something terrible. Prior to coronavirus, the news was filled with the 737 MAX, that airplane that Boeing made. One went down in 2019, I believe that one was Ethiopia, and the few months before, a year before, was Indonesia. More than 300 people were killed. 346 people were killed in those two crashes. Horrific. And I'm not an airfare, I'm not an airlines guy, I don't know all that was there, but I do know that Boeing has admitted fault. They've admitted fault, and they've agreed to pay $2.5 billion. I said billion, like boy, billion. Some of that's a fine Others of it has to go to other individuals. 
But if you think the $2.5 billion is a lot of money, wait till you find out that Boeing themselves has reportedly put back $9 billion to settle this thing. $9 billion. Ethiopia, which is in a lawsuit potentially with Boeing, was given a settlement of five to six hundred million, but their lawyers have said, don't settle for that, you can get a lot more. What kind of price do you put on 300 plus people's lives that have been killed? Have you ever been involved with that? It's been about a decade or so back, but my father who died at the age of 64 died at the hands of an anesthesiologist who did not perform his tasks properly. He did not interview my father prior to surgery and not interviewing him, things were bundled. My father never came out of that. So I sat in a deposition with this anesthesiologist and then heard lawyers begin to talk about what a 64-year-old man's life is worth. How much more money would he have made? How much good health was he in? And so even in our day, whether it's the crash or someone's death through medical malpractice, we begin to put a number. It's just what we do. We don't have other categories to help in that. And the Bible helps us in this. The Bible tells us that you and I have a moral debt. So before I go any further, let's just imagine if you and I were together, and I took out the pen, I took a little slip of paper, and I pushed it across the desk, and I said, hey, would you right now for me write down your moral fine, the fines that you have incurred throughout your lifetime? Could you calculate that up real fast? Here's a calculator, one of those solar-powered things that you have to have just right with the light, you know, that kind of thing. So calculator, pen, piece of paper. Would you real quickly just calculate your fines? If they're going to find Boeing, what would they find you for your moral ineptitude, your moral mistakes, your lying, your cheating, your egotism? Have you got the amount real fast? Well, if you, if you think that figure is accurate, let's go, for those of you who are married, let's go, to your, let's go to your spouse for just a moment, and let's see if that figure resonates with him or her. Better yet, if you're divorced, let's take it to him or her, your ex, the first, second, or third one. Let's run it by them, and let's see what it is. You say, well, pastor, I've never been married. Oh, are you working? Do you work? Let's take it to one of your people that you work with or work for. Let's see Let's see how much the fine is for you. Do you have that amount? Well, Pastor, I'm nothing like Boeing. You know, there's something inside of us we recognize, even the best of us, that we are incurring this moral debt. Last night, Trace and I were flipping around the television. We watched a movie that startled Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I just was convinced that he was going to, you know, kill people, split people's skulls open, and it was actually a halfway thinking person's movie. It came from, and these are all, the, today's message is all about uh, plane crashes. Plane crashes for 500, Alex. 2002, July 1st, real story behind the movie, a Russian passenger jet collides with a cargo jet over the nation of Germany, but the jets were still under the Swiss Air Traffic Control Authority. Got it? They collide in Germany, Swiss Air Traffic Control. Come to find out, the two had collided because in the air traffic control, and some of you work in the airlines in the following, you can come and not correct me later as well how I got this messed up. This guy, one of the air traffic guys, exits the air traffic, and this, this guy's given like two headsets, two stations that he has to oversee. And because he was given too much 
responsibility at the moment these collided. In the movie and in real life, the, the man immediately upon knowing what happened, 69 people died, 45 Russian school children died. They were on their way to some sort of field trip. He had to be immediately taken care of. You and I probably be the same thing. If I knew that that happened, I'd have trouble breathing, some kind of attack. And in the movie, what you find over the next year or so in his life, his marriage breaks down. He had a happy marriage just before the accident. You see him on his way to work, happy marriage. Marriage is almost gone. He's not a father for his kid. He moves out. He's, what's happening here? He's dealing with the psychological guilt of those 69 people, the blood on his hands. And the truth is, you don't have to be in an air traffic controller, and you don't have to be in that tower to have the same type of thing. All of us are like Pilate running around trying to get the blood off our hands. You may not have been responsible for someone's death, but the Bible says you need redemption. You need the ransom Christ paid for you. That's, that's the place of it. It's a high cost. God sent Christ, these the Trinity in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, they team up the Spirit and the Son and the Father. They team up to plan and devise and conspire the plan to take the guilt and the blood off your hands. You need redemption. You need a ransom. How do I get it? Well, the Bible says there in verse 7, it's in Him. The very first two words, in Him we have redemption. The Him there is none other than Jesus. It's not Muhammad. It's not the president, it's not Confucius, it's Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. By the way, in the six chapters of the book of Ephesians, which we're studying again, in Christ, or a pronoun of that, will appear 39 times, 39 times. I wonder if you could spot all 39 later this afternoon. Could you circle them or spot them in the text of Scripture? Paul... Paul's repeating himself like a mother would repeat herself, like a father would repeat himself. Over and over again, if you are united to Jesus Christ, you have this. And if you're not united to Jesus Christ, you don't have it. But we look at this at our world today as we've crisscrossed the world, and we know so many. Today, there'll be Muslims and Hindus in this very room checking out Christianity. You know, there's 4,200 formally recognized religions around the world. 4,200. And if those gods, all those religions, were in a cafeteria, as I said to you a week ago, most of the world thinks that all, all that is the very same God going by different names. It's the same restaurant, they would argue. It's the same waitress. It's the same cook putting on a little different flavor. But then comes along Jesus, and Jesus says, no, there's not 4,200. There's one. There's one. And, and how can we say that? Do we just bury our heads in the sand? Have we just lost our mind? We have to drill in. You have to look at Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection. It's what he is. It's who he is and what he accomplished. Speaking of what he accomplished, this redemption, it's not just his death. You ever wonder why he's not born on the 25th and crucified on the 27th? Why didn't they just kill a baby? It's because he had to live 30-plus years, and he had to do everything perfectly. He never thought sin. He never did anything wrong. And so in Christ, when you're united to Jesus Christ, you have all this. You have all of it. And when you're not united to Jesus Christ, you have none of it. Now, that may be politically incorrect, but that is correct on the Bible. 
And so there's a great power when it comes to Jesus Christ. And the Bible says next, look at this in verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And all throughout the Bible, when God demanded the payment for sin, he did not call upon the Jewish people to strangulate the sacrifice or bludgeon the sacrifice. In fact, it had to be blood. That was the cost. That was the ransom payment. Well, why would God ask for blood? I don't know. Ask God. I don't, I don't understand that one. But there had to be blood. And at the crucifixion of Jesus, his blood pays for this. So you have this debt, and you get this debt paid off when you're connected to Jesus Christ. And you have this, was it $9 billion in fines, like Max, the Supermax people? I don't know what your fines are. But the Bible says the demand of your price, your moral debt, the fines, when God gets in his black robe and puts a hand on the Bible, and he looks over your life and my life, when that paper is pushed across over to you, it is not a number that can be calculated. No, no check can be written. No cryptocurrency. The only currency that matters here is the blood of Jesus Christ. That is how high your moral debt is. It demanded not just a death, it demanded the death of the Son of God. That's a big death. By the way, that blood that frees is an incredible thing. You may have experienced the blood of Jesus Christ freeing you from addictions, from alcohol and drugs and sex and food. Some of you have experienced the addictions of just being a self-righteous Baptist. You know what? The same drop of blood that freed up the, the drug addict is the same drop of blood that freed up the better-than-you, self-righteous, religious person. You're in the same mess together. And Jesus comes, and he redeems us, and he is our substitute. I got to thinking about substitute this week, and something really interesting happened to my Monday. Monday, I was supposed to go with my youngest son to do um, some kind of cardio thing, Camp Gladiator. We've been doing it for a couple weeks. I, I've got more muscles hurting right now than I knew I had muscles. <laughs> and so Monday, we the youngest to do this thing. Well, then the oldest, who's like a, a specimen of fitness, he just walks around, he loves fitness stuff. He says he wants to join us doing it. Now, my thinking is he probably wanted to go there and show us up, which he could have easily easily done that. But, you know, I've got a doctorate, and I began to think this big old brain of mine that we've only got two mats, and you have to have a mat to do this on. So who am I to tell one of my boys that they can't work out? What kind of father would I be, right? So later that day, I went to Rudy's Barbecue and enjoyed my Monday. It was fantastic. It was of God. It was a hallelujah moment. Now, here's the thing. Neither of my boys can act as a substitute for me in exercise. They cannot show up and work out and calories drop off me. Weight does not drop off me. My waist size does not go down because they're working out. It doesn't work that way, but oh to God, would it work that way, wouldn't it? You know, just pay some Olympic athlete to go do that, and I'll be in the kitchen eating some cookies. But watch carefully now. As great as that sounds, that's how the cross of Jesus works. He goes to the cross, a different kind of mat, and he takes and pays my penalty. His death, all his death, that blood pays the 
incalculable penalty, the redemption, it's a ransom. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, is what the Bible says. So he pays that penalty, and watch what happens. Not only his death, but his resurrection, all his life of perfection, he comes, and it's a substitute for me. It's a substitute for me. It's not just he takes the bad stuff for me. All his good deeds are credited in my account. That's what the Bible teaches. That's how big your debt is. That's how great the grace of God is. The blood of Jesus Christ. You know, uh, it's got to be a powerful substance, isn't it, to do that? Even if you don't agree with me, if you think I'm crazy. I mean, to think of it for a second. You know, two billion people on the earth claim to be believers right now. I, I don't believe there are two billion people who are actually believers. Let's just say there's 800 million Let's not count the believers who've gone before. It's just 800 million or so alive today, and I'm just making that figure up in my mind. Jesus only has like a finite amount of blood. It's got to be a powerful thing to cleanse that many people of their sins. In fact, I was uh, startled to discover that back in, I think it was 1994, yes, one-fifth of an ounce of enriched plutonium was found in Adolf Jackal's garage. He's a German. There in Germany, in his garage, this traveling salesman somehow came in possession from a Russian enriched plutonium, one-fifth of an ounce of plutonium. And he was locked up and arrested. Well, what's the big deal about one-fifth of an ounce? Doesn't seem like that much. Well, back in 1959, Oak Ridge Laboratories, Oak Ridge Atomic Laboratory in Tennessee, a fifth of an ounce of plutonium was broadcast, and this is what they did to make sure that there was not contamination. All the clothes were decontaminated. Everybody had to take special medical tests. Everything within four acres of that place had to turn in their clothes. All buildings were washed. All roofs were resurfaced. The lawn surrounding the area was dug up and buried very deeply, and then they took a chisel and chiseled off 100 yards of road in every direction just because one-fifth of an ounce of plutonium got loose. wonder how powerful the blood of Jesus is by comparison. So I'm here today to tell you that something very, very little can be extremely powerful. And if you're like Peter Nelson, that's that Swiss air traffic controller. He ran around for a year or so prior to his death trying to figure out how to cleanse himself and how to get rid of the guilt of the 69 people who died because of his malfeasance as a contributing factor. If you're here today, I'm telling you, your sins can be cleansed. They can be forgiven. All blots can be wiped out. The Bible gives us this beautiful picturesque language as far as the east is from the west. And though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That's the impact, the forgiveness of trespasses. And then verse 7 ends up this way, according to the grace upon grace. That's the literal language of verse 7. It's the original Greek, grace upon grace, just layers of it. It's as if way back before anything else happened, all the characteristics of God, the attributes of God, got into a, like a city council meeting, one of those majestic wood-paneled chambers, only this is an eternity, and God's wisdom, his foreknowledge, saw way out in the future and said, humanity is going to sin. They're going to fall. 
ego and selfishness. It's going to be a mess. And God's justice stood up and said, there has to be a painter. We've got to punish them. God's grace stood up and said, yes, we will have a punishment, but if we can rescue them, we must. We must rescue them. If people fall and break his commands, the grace of God says we must rescue them so that even his justice and wisdom are satisfied. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.